thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. When you hear the words aircraft carrier, what image comes to mind? I bet it's of a massive, imposing warship bristling with aircraft out on the high seas. Well, what about the word museum? You might conjure up the Louvre in Paris, full of priceless paintings and sculptures. But let's combine the two. When you hear aircraft carrier museum, what image comes to mind? If it is one of a permanently docked carrier that attracts thousands of tourists to its static display every year, well, that's part of it. But there is so much more, as we will learn on this episode, from the USS Midway Museum President and CEO, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral John McLaughlin. When our freedoms are threatened, whether it's the 18th century or the 21st century, that you have a young, vibrant group of patriots that are willing to fight to maintain those freedoms. That's the history of, of our country, and that's what our young military people have provided throughout that history. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. 99 Hey everyone, welcome to episode 27 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We will get to our interview with Rear Admiral McLaughlin, Mac, on the USS Midway Museum in just a bit. But before, yes, this is Jello. It's just me this week. Sunshine is off on family holiday, as you may recall. And it's been busy times here lately at the podcast. You might have noticed we've had several Facebook Live sessions, including one with Marine Major B.S. Walsh and another with retired Navy Captain Hoser Miller. And what else have we had? The Miramar Air Show. I'm actually recording this the day before I go. You'll probably listen to it a day or two after. So I can't report on that because I don't know what the future holds. I'm sure it'll be a good time and listen for an update on the next episode. I've recorded several fascinating interviews lately. Those will be coming out on future episodes. And I'll talk about one specifically at the end of this show before we wrap up and say goodbye. And one final thing is the Musings tab on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. I added a post there about my own dealings with a short-notice deployment, just like Hoser's hero Flip Wilson in his latest book, Fight Fight, had a short-notice deployment. It reminded me of an occasion in 2003 when I deployed on board Nimitz and the effect that had on me and my family. So if you're interested in the softer side of what it's like when a naval aviator deploys and the effect on the family, I recommend you go over and check out that article on our musings tab. The only other announcement I have is that we missed our window of opportunity with the guest that we had who was going to come on the show and talk about Air Force Flight School. Dan is deploying. He'll be gone for several months, so we'll either wait for him to get back or we'll see if we can find someone else in his absence to get an episode out there to match BS's on Flight School. So stay tuned for that. All right, we have a few minutes here for listener questions, and I have several of them, but no phone calls. So if you want to submit a phone call for your question, you have a better chance of having it played right away. Now, the first question is from Dave Mons. He's one of our section leads on Patreon, so he gets headline privileges. He said, I've noticed you mentioned life on board a carrier as being pretty tough at times. Can you describe what the biggest challenges are when underway? Obviously, missing family and friends at home is a big one, but what about the day-to-day life on board and the frustrations of shipboard life? After reading Kevin Miller's Raven 1 recently, it struck me that this 
that it is a very noisy place at all hours? Did this cause you or your colleagues difficulty getting adequate rest and eventually lead to fatigue issues? Presumably, you get used to it after a time, or do you? Well, Dave, great questions all around. The carrier life is difficult, and I actually touched on that in the musings post I just referred to, so go take a look at that on our website. But yes, I mean, I can summarize for you. It is challenging because you're stuck on a ship with other strong personalities, and I don't know about your experiences, but whenever I've been stuck with someone, little things just tend to bother you, and it's kind of petty, but I, you know, you can't help it. I think it's human nature. So little things that shouldn't bother you do bother you. The food starts to bother you. Just being told what to do nonstop because you're never really off work. I mean, you can pause and go exercise or imbibe in some minor liberties like watching a quick movie or playing some video games at times but for the most part it's non-stop work and so you know you, you never really get a break and, and that's one thing that's difficult and to your point about fatigue yes the ship is a very noisy place I one time had a stateroom right on the other side of the wall from some equipment machinery I don't know what it was but it was noisy and I had a difficult time sleeping or at least the first few nights that was the case after fatigue sets in your body finds a way to sleep because you need the sleep and so believe it or not you can sleep just about anywhere in fact some diabolical designer planned for birthing spaces that is where you sleep and hang out when you're you know needing to get ready for work or get ready for bed they put those things right between the arresting gear machinery rooms on the deck one level below the flight deck where aircraft are landing. So I don't know who came up with that idea. I don't know how people sleep in there. Thankfully, I never had to try it, but they figure it out and your body will too. So it is difficult out there, but people get the job done professionally day in and day out. And when you get home, you just hope that your personality and your relationships are both stronger for the experience. All right, Nick Matviv who is also a section leader on Patreon, asks, in preparation for deployment, do the squadrons undergo specific tactical training for the expected missions? Are they theater-specific, and do different squadrons specialize in different fields in general or during deployment? Nick, with the exception of the two-seat FAA-18, which in the Navy, anyway, only performs the Ford Air Controller Airborne or FAC-A mission, all F-18 squadrons perform all the same missions, and it's generally not specified according to where you think you're going. So whether you're deploying to the Mediterranean or the Arabian Gulf or the Western Pacific, we have what's called a training and readiness matrix. And the TNR matrix requires all F-18 squadrons to participate in a certain amount of air-to-air and air-to-surface training, as well as carrier qualification, and there's other little things like communications and mobility, etc. And you have to have a certain level in all those different fields in order to have the readiness level that is required before you deploy. And so I can't think of a time where we did something specific simply because we knew we were going maybe to the Arabian Gulf to fly over Iraq. Good question though, Nick. All right, Rob Evans from Catonsville, Maryland asks, was it a big adjustment flying for an airline and flying a passenger jet versus flying for the Navy and in fighters? Yeah, sure was, Rob. Uh, every time I rolled upside down into a loop or aileron roll, all the passengers got upset. <laughs> of course, I didn't do that. No, if anything, flying a fighter is way more difficult than flying an airline jet. The, the, the hardest part about flying an airliner is simply making sure you're in compliance with the company and FAA regulations. And it's really not, frankly, that difficult, although don't tell anyone because they pay us pretty handsomely. But, you know, the thing I've said before, whether it was on this show or someone else's podcast where I was a guest, I don't recall, but the biggest adjustment to your question was simply that before in the Navy as a fighter pilot, that was defining to me. I mean, that was part of who I was and, and who I am, frankly, still. And you never really walked away from that. In the airlines, the way it works now, me as a first officer, I arrive at the airplane on day one of a four-day rotation. I meet my captain. We shake hands. We talk a bit about what we expect to do. We go do it. We may or may not talk very much during the flight or at night if we decide to go out. And at the end, we shake hands and say goodbye, and we walk away. And in some cases, you might keep in touch with someone if you really had good chemistry. But for the most part, you walk away, and it's over, and it's pretty much done until the next time you happen to fly together. And there is no 
outside flying time reports that are required or anything else. So that part's really nice. So if anything, the adjustment was that it was easier and it provided me time to do other things like podcasting. All right, Jim Hearson from Blighty asks, you touched on fuel conservation in the Q&A preceding hosers episode. So this is back in early July. Jim submitted this question. Would you ever consider switching off one engine or is it a zero-sum game? You end up burning twice as much fuel using the single engine? Well, yes, Jim, that is true. I've only ever done this once, and that was on the ground. And it was in Fallon, where I was in a two-seat F-18, which already has slightly less fuel. And we were told that there would be about a 40-minute delay. And I forget if it was for the airspace or some other reason. And so I was sitting down in Marshall, which is simply the area on the airfield you hang out waiting for all the aircraft to get ready, and then you all go together. And knowing I had a long delay, I decided to shut off one of the two engines. But generally, that was non-standard because you want someone looking at you when you start it up again. Now, I started the APU and the engine just fine and never had a problem with it, but I didn't do it again just because I barely saved anything. I mean, I think one engine burns around 500 pounds per hour, and you know, so maybe I saved 400 pounds. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not very much. So no, on the ground, you generally don't. And no, you definitely don't in air, at least not in the FA-18. To your point, your one engine would be burning probably as much or maybe more as both. And the biggest issue, though, is that you lose redundancy. So in the F-18, both engines provide power to hydraulics, electrical, flight controls, etc. And so if you take one of those out of the situation or the equation, then you've just put yourself in extremis, frankly. Now, the F-16, of course, is only single engine, but it is built differently knowing that. And so the F-18 is not intended to be flown on just one engine to conserve fuel. Byron asks, with Russia's ongoing development of long-range hypersonic missiles and the renewing threat those pose, does the Navy again need an aircraft capable of fulfilling the role played by the F-14 Tomcat during the Soviet era? My understanding is that neither the F-A-18 Super Hornet or the F-35 Lightning really have that capability. Well, Byron, I'm not qualified to answer this question because I just don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. There are smart people in Washington, D.C., and Fallon, Nevada, and other places that are watching the threat and watching our capabilities and making sure that we can handle almost any threat that's out there. So if they deem the threat that you suggest is posing a big threat to us, then they will, I hope, and I have faith that they will, make sure that we have both the capability and the funding to address that threat. Other than that, I agree with you that the F-14 Tomcat took away the fleet defense that we used to have versus the Soviets. And I also agree that the Super Hornet does not have that same capability lacking the Phoenix, although I know they're making improvements to the AMRAAM for longer range. And I really don't know enough about the F-35 to say if it can fill that role or not. But again, to summarize, I have faith that people are watching. And if we need that capability, we'll get it. Dennis Mancilla asks, are you guys still issued gold wafers to barter with natives in the event you get shot down like in Flight of the Intruder, or is this no longer the case? Dennis, I was never issued gold wafers. I don't know of anyone who was, so I'm going to go with the this is no longer the case answer. Alexander asks, I was wondering about weight and balance for modern fighters. I thought with high fuel consumption and ordnance, it might be a constant concern. You know, Alexander, I would not call it a constant concern. It is a pre-flight concern once you know what you will load on the aircraft between fuel tanks and infrared pods, weapons as air-to-air and air-to-ground weapons go, especially the 2,000-pound JDAM or laser-guided bombs. But for the most part, you do the center of gravity calculation at the beginning to make sure it's within limits. And after that, even in flight, when you release the weapons or refuel from a tanker or drain your tanks, you're not really too concerned about center of gravity anymore. Now, that being said, the aircraft, at least the F-18, does have a warning system that will alert you if fuel is trapped somewhere or some other imbalance is causing the possibility of a out-of-balance center of gravity consideration. But for the most part, once you've done your pre-flight planning, center gravity considerations are no longer thought of. All right, last question for today then. Mike Nguyen, he says, I've heard you mention that you were with the VMFAT 101 sharpshooters. Can you tell us about your experience at the FRS? Were you there as a student or as an instructor? 
So Mike submitted this in late July, and we've since had our episodes with BS where I talked about the fact that, yes, I was a 101 sharpshooter student as my initial F-18 training in El Toro, Southern California, before it closed. And Mike, it was the best year of my life. Whereas in flight school, I was always worried about doing real well and working super hard to get jets and then get F-18s. By the time I got jets and F-18s and I was in El Toro and I had gone to school for two years at UC Irvine, not far from there, it was a great year because I relaxed. I didn't have to sweat quite as much of the grades. I still worked hard and I certainly still partied hard and, and played hard, but it was just a good year because I was right where I wanted to be and I really did enjoy it. So yeah, thanks for the trip down memory lane. That was in 1995 and 96 and I was a student at 101 and it was a great, great year. All right, that will do it for the question and answer segment for this episode. Let's now then get straight to the interview on the USS Midway Museum with its president and CEO, Mac McLaughlin. Today I am in the executive office of the USS Midway Museum, and I am joined by retired Rear Admiral John McLaughlin, callsign Mac. Mac, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sir. Thank you, Jello. We're Honored to have you here and look forward to our discussion. Oh, great. Well, we are in the plush C-suite corner office here, but actually, what did this used to be? <laughs> you know, this was actually the supply officer's office, so we knew immediately if we came to an aircraft carrier and we wanted to get the nicest office, you just have to find out where the top shop lived, and sure enough, as you can see up on my uh, wall here, uh -huh. that's the actual picture of this office during Operation Desert Storm, the Midway's uh, final mission, before she came home and uh, was decommissioned, and we're trying to make it, as you can see with the clocks up on my wall, as authentic as it was back during Desert Storm. Okay, cool. Well, we will get to that in a little bit. And if the listener hasn't figured it out, we are actually on board the USS Midway, which is now a museum here in the San Diego Harbor. And we'll get to the ship itself and what it has done and what it is doing. But first, let's get to know you, Mac. Uh, where are you from? Where did you go to school? And what was your military career like? Well, I started as the son of a sailor, grew up my whole life wanting to join the Navy, uh, ended up going to the Naval Academy, graduating Started driving ships, came out here to San Diego and was on an LPH, a helicopter transport ship, and realized that the surface warfare guys worked too hard for a living, and all the pilots would come up to the bridge and ask me why I didn't go to flight school. The rest is history. I ended up going to flight school, uh, got my wings, came out here to San Diego, returned, flew in a bunch of squadrons, uh, downstream became a TAR. Uh, mostly working with reserve programs, uh, commanded a helicopter squadron, Naval Air Station, New Orleans, uh, was selected for flag rank and commanded the Naval Air Reserve Force, and then actually unified the air and the surface forces into, I was the inaugural commander of the Naval Reserve Forces Command, which is all the reserves across the U.S. Retired just in time to move back home to our house in San Diego, and here in San Diego, they were looking for some sucker to uh, bring the USS Midway to town and open it up as a museum. I was just a helicopter pilot. I didn't know any better. So I signed up for the job and been doing this for 14 years. Wow. Outstanding. And what is TAR? TAR is, a, it's now called the FTS program. It, okay. it used to stand for Training Administration Reserves. So you're actually full-time on active duty, but your specialization is administering and training and working with the reserve forces to integrate them into the active force. Gotcha. Okay. So you were a helicopter guy, did some reserve stuff, and you've been in San Diego most of your career. That's pretty nice. What helicopters did you fly? Yeah. Well, I like to say I got shit canned from every community I tried. I, I started <laughs> off in H-46s. Uh, flying vert rep. I went to HT-18. Back in those days, they were flying Hueys. Okay. Uh, I came back to San Diego, became a TAR, and they were doing combat search and rescue in the H-3. So I got H-3 qualified. And then uh, under Secretary of the Navy Layman, he decided he wanted a 600-ship Navy. And a big part of that was an expansion of the Navy Reserve Frigate Program. So they needed LAMPS pilots, which nobody could spell LAMPS and fly <laughs> off the back end of frigates. So I was selected to go in at the front end of that program okay. uh, and did most of my time in H-2s. The Sea Sprite, I believee it was. Sprite, right. Right. Okay, excellent. 
All right. Well, it's your current role we'd like to spend some time talking about today. The USS Midway saw almost a half a century of service, uh, beginning right at the end of World War II. And I believe it was decommissioned in the early 90s, so almost 50 years. And now, as we said earlier, it is a museum permanently docked in the bay near downtown San Diego. But before we get to all that, let's start at the very beginning. What was so significant about the ship's namesake battle, the Battle of Midway, in 1942? Well, I think you have to just go to the date and, and look back in history to realize where America was reluctantly getting pulled into World War II with the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941. And only six months later, after literally our entire Pacific fleet of battleships is decimated at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese uh, emperor is, is moving into uh, our allies' uh, country down there in Australia, and uh, Admiral Nimitz decided to go help them to defend their island. And we went down there and engaged uh, the Japanese in the Battle of Coral Sea. Of course, they sunk the USS Lexington at Coral Sea, hobbled the USS Yorktown that barely got towed back into Pearl Harbor to get uh, retrofitted when some intelligence came available that, hey, guess what? In June, it's looking like the Japanese force is going to invade Midway Island, and we need to have a carrier force down there. So Hornet and Enterprise were dispatched. Uh, they loaded up the Yorktown, uh, still doing work on her, by the way, all the way into battle uh, because she wasn't nearly combat ready, uh, and surprised the Japanese uh, at the Battle of Midway. And really, it was so significant because not only did it turn the tide of the entire Pacific campaign, but it was the first uh, major naval victory in the history of the United States Navy where the ship force that was decisive, that's the United States, defeated the uh, adversary without ever coming into visual contact with the adversary. So in essence, it would be real easy to say the Battle of Midway uh, represents the transition from a battleship-centric Navy to an aircraft carrier-centric Navy, and the Battle of Midway was clearly an aircraft carrier victory for our United States Navy. For sure. So whereas in the old days, the ships would slug it out like two boxers just trading punches, now everything was over the horizon for the first time, and it really was when the aircraft carrier came of age. It really was, and uh, so the Navy uh, decided that their next class of aircraft carriers should be named after that decisive battle and uh, changed the name of the hull that they were already in the process of, of building into the USS Midway. And, of course, commissioned, as you said, eight days after the end of World War II and became the longest-serving aircraft carrier in uh, the 20th century. Wow. So I actually did have a chance to get on the USS Midway while it was coming home from Japan. And I was a midshipman at the time. This was 1991. Mm -hmm. And there was an E-2 squadron on board, and they let me have a ride in the back of a Hawkeye. And so I can say I have one trap on this uh, ship, which is now a museum. So I know that always makes folks feel old, but um, it, it, was, it, it definitely was a great ship. And it was fun, of course, as a midshipman. Your eyes are wide open. So I really sure, enjoyed that experience. Sure. So Well, it makes a lot of people on this ship feel old. And I, I think that's one of the keys to our uh, unprecedented successes we got a, a bunch of old veterans that have worked on these crazy old aircraft carriers and worked in most of these uh, museum-quality aircraft we have up on the flight deck and down on the hangar deck. And their interaction with the people when they come on board is, is the most valuable asset we have here as a museum. Very cool. Now, the ship, as you said, named for a battle. These days, of course, mostly named for presidents and a couple dignitaries, John C. Stennis, for example. But now, though... This ship missed, as we said, the operations in World War II. So what were some of its initial taskings or highlights in those first early years? You know, really, this ship um, was uh, deployed over in the Mediterranean uh, for a lot of the Cold War, uh, eventually got homeported in Alameda, and became the first aircraft carrier that was ever homeported outside the United States. Really? Uh, as it was... Uh, 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 detailed over to Yokosuka was the first aircraft carrier home ported uh, there in Japan, was there for a little over 20 years and became the forward-based carrier that really earned its reputation as just being magical because 
unlike the other carriers, of course, that flew in their air wings and, and rotated crews, when everybody's stuck in Yokosuka, the air wing becomes one, the ship's crew becomes one, the mm-hmm. staff become one. They're all going on liberty together. They're all working together. Uh, they're all getting together, and their families are living together. So it became a much closer and cohesive group of, uh, of aviators, maintainers, and engineers to run the ship, which really allowed it to become quite the operator throughout those years, despite the fact that it was getting older and older and older. It somehow pulled off just as many sorties as the newer Forrestal-class carriers, and really, uh, even into the nuclear age, Midway was still keeping up with those aircraft carriers. Well, the ship looks different today than when it was first laid down. What were some modifications done to the ship over the years? Well, you know, most most of these uh, carriers back in those days uh, were Jeep carriers, or they were straight deck carriers built uh, for World War II. And th- this one was initially a straight deck carrier. Meaning no angle. When you landed, you were landing right up the center line of the ship. Exactly. Okay. And you're, you better hope that there's no aircraft parked forward. Uh, <laughs> and certainly the idea of doing launching and recovery operations as this, at the same time, like we do now with our angle decks, was uh, not even thought of in those days. Uh, as the aircraft started getting uh, a little bit heavier, as the English started to uh, modify their carrier decks and angle decks, the U.S. picked up on that. First, they made a, an angle deck for primarily the props that they had, and they had old hydraulic catapults and enough to get those post-World War II and Korean uh, aircraft airborne. But as our aircraft inventory continued to be modified, continued to get heavier and higher performance, initially she had to go into the yards for yet another modification uh, to peep up her arresting gear, catapult, and rebuild an entire flight deck, which is the flight deck you walk on today. Amazing. Now, when I was on the ship, it was on its way home from Japan to be decommissioned, and there was no F-14s in the air wing at that time. Was this ship ever equipped with F-14s? They were actually too large uh, to land on the aircraft carrier, but we do have a great story. In fact, the local uh, sales representative for USAA Insurance that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have uh, as their insurance carrier, uh, Tom Lawson, uh, out here in San Diego, was one of two F-14 pilots that were bingo state back to the Enterprise, and they were really low on fuel. It was one of those... Dark and stormy nights, truly. Uh, They're trying to stay out of the squall line. It was totally uh, uh, socked in, uh, in and around the Enterprise. Couldn't get the F-14s back, and the only aircraft carrier that could even possibly recover them was the USS Midway. So Tom and his wingman came on board. They landed, took a trap. Everything went fine, stayed overnight, and the next morning they cranked up those catapults and launched them off, and they went back home. But those are the only two uh, wow. Tomcats that were ever aboard. I wonder if they went home with some extra stickers on them or anything. But what was that uh, Was that a particular conflict happening? I mean, the two carriers were near each other enough to yeah, help out? Yeah, it was uh, – I'm pretty sure it was during Vietnam, which okay. is really where this aircraft carrier really uh, did most of her cruising, and especially – uh, got all of her battle stars. Uh, as you might imagine, when you're forward deployed to Yokosuka, you not only get in the regular carrier cycle for Vietnam, but when some of those carriers are pulled off the line uh, early uh, for whatever operational or maintenance issues they may have, guess who filled in on short notice? They would call up the Midway uh, flag, and they'd get the battle group commander and uh, the CAG on board, and pretty soon they're underway from Yokosuka to fill in as needed. No kidding. And before that, Korea, and after Vietnam, Desert Storm. So throughout the years, wherever America is called, Midway's been there. It's quite a storied history. And of course, when the veterans group from the Midway come on board, that's when we really hear the stories. And they're so pleased to see that the Midway magic is is still alive and well with with their old gal that they, they served on. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when you go to Desert Storm, now we've got modern-day Nimitz uh, nuclear carriers and certainly some of the more uh, uh, advanced uh, forestall classes out there in the area of engagement, and yet the Admiral chooses the USS Midway 
as his flagship for Operation Desert Storm. I mean, I think that says a lot about the storied history of this aircraft carrier and the name she represents. That speaks volumes indeed. It was designed to fly fast in that treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Now, not every aircraft carrier at the end of its glorious life gets a nice sundown like Midway has received. How did this ship come to be a museum? Well, it was actually uh, going to have a nice sundown like all these aircraft carriers. uh, um, During her decommissioning ceremony uh, over at North Island in 1992, of course, a lot of business people and civilian dignitaries from the local region, as well as the military brass, came over for the decom, and they gathered all the prior commanding officers. And I guess it was a very, very moving ceremony. I wasn't there. Uh, with such a storied past and, and such an iconic name as the Midway being decommissioned, and one of the, one of the uh, local businessmen who knew not a lot about the Navy, leaned over and asked one of the Navy people, so what's going to happen to the Midway now? And uh, they explained to the businessman, his name was Alan Uke, they said, well, Mr. Uke, the the ship will be towed up to Bremerton, it'll be uh, dismantled, uh, and then probably sold for scrap. And, And Alan was, after hearing about this great past of this iconic uh, ship, said, well, we can't have that. And Alan began the Don Quixote quest at that point. That was back in the 1990s. In fact, we still have his article up on my wall that he originally wrote for the San Diego Union Tribune about this crazy idea of bringing the USS Midway back to San Diego and opening up as a museum. And 10 years later, we got a letter from the Secretary of the Navy authorizing us to tow her down here and open it up as a museum. So it was a, it was a ten, I call it the second battle of Midway, the, <laughs> the battle to bring the Midway to San Diego. It was a wild idea back in those days, met with a lot of resistance, but we had a lot of great leadership in the city that really uh, you know, stayed like the dog on the mailman's uh, leg and wouldn't <laughs> let go uh, for those 10 years. Battled City Hall in the, in the inn, got the support of the Port of San Diego, the California Coastal Commission, and on a trial basis, because we were required to have a letter of credit for $500,000 for when we failed, the Port mm-hmm. of San Diego wanted to make sure we had enough money on on file to pay for the towing of it back to Bremerton because a lot of people were sure that this ship would not be successful in town. We still proudly have that account. But over the last 14 years, we're now seeing 1.4 million visitors annually, and it's the most visited historic ship in the entire world. Wow. Well, and it makes sense to have one here in San Diego. I mean, a lot like Norfolk, Virginia, this is such a Navy-centric town. So many bases, so many sailors, so many families. I think it's the right thing. And it's become a big part, if not the lead part of the waterfront here, I would argue. Well, I think it's really galvanized this area of San Diego. It certainly deserves to be here, and I'm hopeful that in 100 years, in the bay that the very first aircraft carrier, the USS Langley, was homeported, uh, right across the bay from where we currently are, where the modern-day aircraft carriers uh, moor over at North Island, that there'll still be this relic of days gone by, Mm. uh, because it certainly has changed the waterfront down here, and where this used to be merely a supply depot and, frankly, a kind of a rough section of town, uh-huh. it's now become the most pedestrian-friendly tourism area that is still in the, in the process of being developed. In fact, just in the past two months, we had the groundbreaking right astern of Midway 
the old Navy Supply Building is going to come down. They're going to build a new Navy Headquarters Building there, and then a bunch of condominiums, hotels, retail shops, wonderful little restaurants right down here on the bay. So this area has gone from being no man's land since the Midway got here to being the last major area of downtown San Diego being developed. And it's going to be a must-see destination for all future tourists as they come to visit San Diego. For sure. Well, it sounds like you've already got a lot of them. 1.5 million a day. I mean, today it was hard to find parking to come see you. How many on a typical summer day will make their way to the Midway? Yeah, a typical summer day is right around 6,000 people a day come on board. And uh, a good portion of them, uh, you know, a lot of them come thinking they're going to spend two hours and end up leaving at closing time. (laughs) Uh, It's really become so much more than we ever thought Everybody thinks, of course, it's successful. It's in San Diego, and you got a lot of Navy people and Marine Corps people in San Diego. Truth is, 85% of our visitors are from out of this region. Mm. And more and more, we're seeing more international visitation. The large Chinese groups that are coming into L.A. now are getting on buses Mm. and coming south to see the USS Midway Museum. What are some of the reactions you get? I mean, just walking up here with you earlier, you see kids that are gleeful. You see families that are just enjoying themselves. I mean, everyone looks like they really enjoy their experience here. I think if your listeners were wanting to wonder how people react to the Midway, I would advise them to go to TripAdvisor.com. Go to San Diego, uh, things to do, and you'll see that the number one rated visitor attraction in all of San Diego is the USS Midway Museum. And under that, just look at some of those comments. It varies from, wow, I've never been on a Navy ship and this was really incredible, to my father served in World War II and he never talked much about it, but I felt like I was in touch with him here. Uh, and it's not just the museum visitor that we're able to reach. Our our education program for young people coming on board to learn about their heritage, learn about their culture, learn that freedom is not free, is up to about 60,000 visitors every year. And we pay for a lot of those young kids. to. We pay for their buses. We don't charge them anything because otherwise they won't get exposed to this wonderful piece of, of, of America's history that they might not see. We've also become a tremendous after-hours venue. We have over 450 military ceremonies annually here, and 250 of our evenings after we close up the doors from the museum, we open up our Midway Cocktail Lounge And people have special events here, everything from formal sit-down dinners uh, to bar mitzvahs to birthday parties to just anniversaries and all sorts of celebrations. We welcomed one of your docents, Pete Pettigrew, on the show recently, Viper, and he talked about the 50th anniversary of Top Gun coming up in 2019. We'll also have a big gala event here. So you have a giant space. And that's one other thing I wanted to mention is many people, like you said, in the TripAdvisor reviews have never been on a Navy ship, let alone one this big. So you've got the facilities plus the catering and everything you need to host those big events. Well, and I I think especially, you know, when we get around our shipmates and we start telling uh, sea stories, we've probably heard most of them and Mm -hmm. it gets old. And certainly for a lot of our uh, volunteers, their wives have heard just about all of their stories. (laughs) But here on the Midway, they have a new and very enticing atmosphere to tell these invigorating stories about the the, the fabric of this country and, and their service to our nation, to a new group of visitors each day, none of which have ever encountered anyone remotely associated with people that served in the Navy. Or in most cases, we survey our people, over 65% of the people that will come on board the Midway today have no relatives that have ever served in any of the armed services. Wow. Now, that's a, that's a scary demographic. And when you, when you understand that less than 1% of our young Americans are signing up these days, it's easy to extrapolate in the future years. In 25, 30 years when people come on board, that number won't be 65. It'll be 80, mm-hmm. 85%. The minority of people will be touched by this very significant part of Americana that really was the foundation of our country. And, and, and by that, I mean when our freedoms are threatened, whether it's the 18th century or the 21st century, that you have a young 
and uh, vibrant group of patriots that are willing to fight to maintain those freedoms. That's the history of, of our country, and that's what our young military people have provided throughout that history. Amen. I wish I was ending the interview because that's about as good as it gets. It sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I should almost quit, but I do have a couple more questions here. Now, you said a moment ago that children's groups come on, and is there like an overnight stay they can do here as well? Is that there's, here? Uh, there's about 55 opportunities for overnight stays, wow. and we have everything from Girl Scout troops to Boy Scout troops to church groups to school groups. In fact, we've had to extend it into uh, adult overnight programs that we have for our membership. And we have a teacher's seminar during the summer uh, that we've had going for the past seven years. And they, just this year, got to stay overnight. So staying overnight in those bunks where the sailors slept, I think really gives the people a sense of it. And we always wake them up the next morning, and they're all a little tired and dogged. And they go, well, imagine doing that eight months in a row away from your family, That's and you'll right. start to get a sense of the service that these young kids are giving us. Plus all the noise overhead in the real world and the 1MC blaring and everything else, the ship's rocking and rolling sometimes. Yeah, that's that's good. It gives them a little taste for that. Exactly. Well, it's not something you and I need to necessarily relive, but no. <laughs> for those who've never had a chance, that's pretty amazing. Now, in addition to that, of course, you have, gosh, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of static displays. You have the little simulator rides. I'm not sure what else to call those virtual uh, rides you strap into in the hangar bay and you can go upside down and feel like you're flying. And you've got a food facility, a shop. What else am I missing? I mean, you have tours of the whole ship that make it look like when it used to operate, too. I mean, well, and, the ship is and, really and it's, in, it's interesting. We've done a couple of surveys because museums have a tendency to take whatever the facility is that their museum's in and take the mentality of building a museum in a building and apply it to ships and turn the ship into a museum. And we've always tried to maintain that this is a ship, and when people come on board, they want to see a ship. They want to experience what it's like to be on a ship. They don't want to see a museum. So we've, we've tried to keep it as authentic as we possibly can and just open up as many spaces as we can. Now, it's constantly a battle because there's the constant uh, battle between my wonderful volunteers that came up to me when we were putting those simulators down in the hangar deck saying, hey, Mac, that's not very authentic. We didn't have any simulators. And, of course, I have to say, you're you're absolutely right, but look at the long lines of people right. waiting to get onto these and, by the way, make $15 per ride donations to the Midway that allows us to do the kind of maintenance that's really required long-term to keep this authentic. And that is actually my very next question, which is, you know, this ship is nearly, what, 75 years old. How extensive is that maintenance? I mean, it's permanently docked. I don't know what's underwater. I'm guessing, is it still floating or is it secure? But what's the maintenance like for something like this ship? Well, the good news is that our board of directors are uh, mostly boat owners. And they understand that in a boat, the real Achilles heel lies beneath the water. So we invested close to $10 million to secure every opening below uh, the waterline to make sure the ship was either painted or had a covering that we apply beneath the waterline so that at our waterline and below, the USS Midway is not touching the water. So we are, in fact, not corroding from that. On the inside, we've got a dehumidification project that keeps us dry on the inside, and we've sucked as much of the liquid out as we can. We have cathodic protection system. We invest hundreds of thousands of dollars annually. In fact, they're out there doing the diving right now. We get a stem-to-stern investigation of our entire hall. First of all, they give it a shave. They take all of the marine growth off of it to, to keep it looking good. And then any place that has bare metal, they prep it and cover it so that it's not seeing the light of water. So essentially, we're dry docking this ship on an annual basis. Our intention is to do that forever because dry docking this ship would be a real problem. We'd have to pull it out of service, take it all the way to Bremerton, a tremendous expense to not only do that, but shut down the museum for six months to a year while we take it up there. So we went out to industry and said, what can we do below the decks? Like I said, uh, our board approved the spending of a lot of money for that. 
And then we continue to go around the ship. We've repainted this entire ship uh, two times. Uh, we do it very professionally. We're doing a, a top to bottom. We're working on the mast as we speak and just uh, have a, a planned maintenance system just like you would on any ship. Sure. The advantage is we're not really operating other than with tourists, so we don't have to go those long periods without any maintenance and upkeep. We're constantly upkeeping it. But our budget for maintenance of this ship is uh, 3 to $4 million annually that we put in wow. uh, to have the people and, and do the kind of long-term preservation maintenance as well as any corrective maintenance remember we're still operating a ship that still has the same electrical backbone Mm. as it did when it was decommissioned so we've had to uh, do a lot of work with industry to take that backbone and integrate air conditioning into it sure which which wasn't part of it (laughs) build elevators on it which wasn't a part of it uh, provide electrical services to all the different areas of the ship that we've got open to the public and that are used as as retail and food services areas like you mentioned right. earlier. How large of a team does this effort require? I mean, you've got a bunch of docents, you've got hundreds of volunteers, but what is your staff like? Our staff is, we've got about 140 full-time employees. Wow. Now that's to do everything from, uh, you know, taking care of the ship, providing uh, guest services for the museum, doing our massive education program, as well as we have a huge uh, program uh, that takes care of special events because we're in such demand after hours. So we got about 125 to 140 full-time people, about 100 part-time people. Most of them are educators, and interestingly enough, we have a huge group of part-time bartenders. Hmm. Uh, We have events on the flight tech with 40 bars set up for some of these big corporations that want to have, uh, you know, cocktails uh, on, on short notice sure. uh, as, as they're having their, their dinner parties up on the flight deck. So it's a pretty big, extensive effort. But I like to look at that group of, of paid employees as really the backbone. We provide the infrastructure that keeps the ship going. But the people that really, really make it happen and make the Midway so special are our 800 volunteers uh, that split up the time amongst all of them in all facets of Midway. Yes, we have the docents to give the tours, but the people that take care of you, if you have a slip and fall mm-hmm. or if there's a security alert, the people who answer the phone if you call here, the people who help with our membership program, the people that take care of most of our aircraft, as well as the ship has a uh, a huge ship restoration uh, group that, that does nothing but keep the ship shiny and new. Very cool. And interestingly, you have, and I say you as in the collective effort of the museum, done a wonderful job of taking something that was built essentially for war with able-bodied people and converting it to it's really accessible to all, but there are still those hazards. So when you were talking about the groups that want to have their fun up on the flight deck, well, gosh, there's still hazards on this ship. So I take it you have the appropriate people in place to uh, make sure they find their way off the ship safely. Yeah. And we, and we have, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. My favorite, uh, exhibit when we first opened up was the arresting gear cable. We had it hooked up to the phantom up on the flight deck hook. It was engaged and the wire was actually up off the deck a little bit, just like it would be, uh, when the phantom engaged on landing. Oh no. And I think I can see where you're going with this. <laughs> it was it was very cool, except when the people kept doing face plants Oof. during evening events, yes. looking up at the airplanes and not paying attention. So over time, we have tried to erect this safely, but we've constantly and we and we continue to constantly. Just the other day, I had a a person who hit their their shin, tripped, and had a bad fall. And when I looked at the history of that particular entryway we had had three of those over the past 10 years so we cut that down now Mm. now it's not authentic so if you're a damage control person and you come on board you go hey wait a second this is supposed to have a a ledge here but you know so it's it's constantly fine-tuning it but but clearly safety and security of our visitors is our number one concern and, and we've had to make a lot of modifications over the years sure and on that note what would you want potential visitors to know before arriving at the ship for a day I think uh, I would just give yourself plenty of time to enjoy it. We have people literally that come on board when we open at 10 o'clock 
and leave at 1040. And I see them leaving. I said, wow, that was a quick visit. They go, well, I, I have a flight out, but I wanted to get on an aircraft carrier and I had to come on board and I didn't get to see much, but I had to do it. But if I could tell people anything, it's just give yourself a day off. You probably won't be here the full day, but don't rush yourself because there's really so much to see. And we have multiple times we hear from our visitors that have come back for a second or third time. Oh, I missed that the last time. Oh, I had no idea that was going on. And we're adding new exhibits constantly. So I would say plan on on spending some time here. And the only other thing I would say is take advantage of the free audio tour. Pick it up when you first get on board and go see the Battle of Midway movie because it kind of tells the story and sets the backdrop for what you're about to see the rest of your day. Right. And as far as aircraft go, what are some examples of ones? You already talked about the F-4 Phantom. I know you have my favorite up there, the F-18. What else have we got? You know, we've got just about uh, every aircraft uh, you can name from World War II through Korea, Vietnam, and even into the current day, which is really pretty easy these days. It's either an F-18 or an 860 helicopter or an E-2 Hawkeye. So we've got all those, but we've got a real extensive selection of the history of, of fighters, the history of attack aircraft. We got old CODs. We got old Willie Fuds. We've got the only chronological list of all of the helicopters that have served on aircraft carriers. So when you start off with the first first one that was actually back in Korea, up through the 860, and at each aircraft, uh, there'll either be a docent there to tell you about it, or you can activate the uh, audio tour and listen to an aviator that's been in that aircraft, flown it, uh, tell you his stories and tell you all about the aircraft. And those audio tours come in what, 10 or 12 different languages? They come in six different languages. Six, okay. Yeah, that's right. what that's that's what we found we've needed. It's a real international audience. Excellent. And the most used language other than English, we thought it would be Espanol with our great Hispanic mm-hmm. uh, influence down here in the Southwest. It's actually Chinese, Mandarin. Wow. Yeah, that's the number one language. No kidding. Well, that's good. Yeah. All right, Mac. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been very generous with it. Thank you very much. Just a couple parting questions that we often have. Let's start, though, with the ship. I mean, we talked about the maintenance, and it sounds like the ship's future is virtually indefinite, but what does the future hold for the USS Midway Museum? I think the future of the ship is indefinite. What we're really working on now is making sure that the neighborhood is around here that's able to support this ship for a long, long time. We're working with the Port of San Diego to build a veterans park that will literally run around uh, the USS Midway. We'll knock down that building out in front that blocks the view of the Midway, build a nice little park setting, build access to the water all around our pier, and extend that down to some other areas around here to build literally the largest uh, veterans park on the west coast of America, and, and where else would it be than, than San Diego? So we got that going for us, and uh, really we're just taking a, a step back. We're coming up on our 15-year anniversary, and now that we know who we are, mm-hmm. we know who we're going uh, to be in the future, we're building a long-term endowment to ensure that this museum uh, is never in any financial doubt. That would be the death knell. Yeah. Uh, we've been able to put away a lot of money over the last 14 years and built a sizable endowment that continues to grow with the help and support of our members and other donors. So it's it's really about us building an icon that's really cool here in, in 2018. But we think in terms of 2058, wow. when in 50 years... I guess that's 40 years. I was never too good at math. But, <laughs> uh, you know, what What will the American public, and that is our focus audience. It's sure. nice that we have international visitors, but our focus is, is not just telling the Navy story, not just telling the aircraft story, but telling the American story mm-hmm. uh, about the service and sacrifice of always our youngest generation uh, to maintain our freedoms and, and building that out in whatever medium will be required over the next 15 years to really make an impactful statement to the visitors when they come on board. Certainly. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. I wish we had more time to talk about more. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, but 
We'll go ahead and wrap this up. That's the future of the ship. What about you? How much longer are you going to do this? I mean, you look like you're enjoying yourself. Well, What's the future I, hold I for am, Mac? and when I look like I'm not enjoying myself is when I'll go to my board of directors and say, it's time to do this. To tell you the truth, I thought when I retired from the Navy, I was 52 years old, and I thought now I'm 67, I've been doing this for 15 years, that I, I would be retired. I just arbitrarily <laughs> figured when I turned 65... But I got some, some good advice from Admiral Bud Edney, the retired four-star here in San Diego, who asked me if I thought about retiring. And I recently told him, yeah, I, I was kind of thinking about retiring. And he said, well, Mac, here's the, here's the truth of it. Don't arbitrarily retire. If you're enjoying what you're doing and what you're doing is meaningful to you mm-hmm. and it allows you the time to have a life with your family, your friends, your social network without being too stressed out, then don't be in a hurry to arbitrarily retire because you'll retire and within a year you'll be tired. You've taken those two cruises, you've played a lot of <laughs> golf, but you're being looking for something meaningful to do. That's so right. if you've already got that, retire when you know it's time to retire. Sure. So I don't have an answer for that question these days. I'm I'm enjoying this. Uh, it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done in my life, and I'll look forward to doing it until uh, it stops becoming that. Well, that says a lot. And I've also been told that if you enjoy what you're doing, well, people can't tell whether you're working or playing, so what's the difference? <laughs> Just keep doing it because you got to fill the hours. And, and I agree with you. Having something meaningful is, is key, and that's part of the reason I began this podcast, frankly. Absolutely. So, We're going to thank you for your time. We're going to thank you for your years of service to our country in more ways than one. But before we let you go, as I referenced before we hit record here, we always ask our guests how they earned their call signs. Now, you coming from the helicopter community, they're not necessarily always known for the most creative call signs, but (laughs) Mac McLaughlin, I think most of the listeners can figure that out. Anything more to it than that? Well, I just, I mean, if you have podcast listeners that were listening to Pete Pettigrew, you mentioned earlier. Oh, yes. I hope he shared his new call sign. Diaper? No. Yes. Was yes. it diaper? Yeah, yes. That's right. in, okay. his, <laughs> in his older days, he was known as Viper, but now that he's grown in age and wisdom, his call sign here on the Midway is Diaper, not Viper. <laughs> Got to keep the man <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, mine's, mine's pretty good. Whether you're McCullough, McLean, McLaughlin, you kind of pick up the Mac moniker, and right. I've kind of been that since high school, and so that was a pretty easy one for me. Okay. So you're not at the significant or sufficient, I should say, age or position that you can give yourself something super cool? No. <laughs> I think my super cool days are in, in my distant past. I'm, I'm fine with Mac. Well, you're in the executive suite here, so I think you're doing pretty darn well. So, Mac, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you lead here, which I know is well beyond just the four walls of this office. But the museum is providing a huge service, not just to the San Diego community, but to the United States, as you mentioned, and even to visitors from abroad. So thank you for that. Thank you for your service. And unless you have any parting shots, I think we can wrap this up. Well, let's beat Notre Dame out here in San Diego, and let's beat Army this year. That's <laughs> all. That's my final thoughts. All right. That sounds great. Thanks, Jello. Very You're much. welcome. All right. Let's get out of here. All right. Once again, a big thanks to Mac and his entire staff there at the USS Midway Museum in San Diego. I don't know about you, I expected that interview to talk a lot about the ship and the static display aircraft, which we did, but I really appreciated the reminder on service and the cost of freedom, and the USS Midway embodies that. So if you are ever in San Diego and you have plenty of time, as Max suggested, I recommend you make your way down to the waterfront and go check out the museum. I believe we covered all the different terms that we covered real-time there. FTS and TAR will show up on the glossary tab of our website. But there was one more, and that was LAMPS. That might have snuck through. That's the Light Airborne Multipurpose System, more associated with the SH-2 C-Sprite in my mind, but I guess the H-60s still use it as well. And that was the Navy's program that developed manned helicopters to assist the surface fleet in anti-submarine warfare. So again, a big thanks to Mac and his team, and I hope you enjoyed that interview. All right, well, just two quick out-the-door announcements here. One is the music is, again, provided by Jaime Lopez, our podcast music provider. You might remember this song from early in September. I decided to recycle it because we only ended up using it once, and I wanted to honor his efforts for the show. So thanks to Jaime for the cool music as well. 
As I alluded to earlier, I want to inform you of an upcoming interview with Matt Wagner of Eagle Dynamics, where we will talk about DCS, or Digital Combat Simulator. Many of you have asked me about that since I began this podcast, and I went from knowing close to nothing to having just flown the simulator and talked with Matt. So we will air that as episode 28 next time. But until then, let me remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. But I can tell you that Mac does speak for the USS Midway Museum, as you would expect as its president and CEO. So that'll do it for this week. We'll see you next time back here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.